Hi, welcome to the Dishcast. Yet another edition of me inviting people I'm interested in and want to talk to on this podcast for dishheads and for anybody else who wants to listen. And this week, um, I've invited Megan Down. That's the way you pronounce it, right? Yeah, lately that's the way I'm pronouncing it again. There's a, there's a long and not not terribly interesting story. Oh, sorry. I sh- yeah, no, no, no. Actually, so but you're Dorm? right on. Dorm? You're very on trend. No, Daum is right. It's, okay. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can refer to the show notes to a recent blog post I wrote about this scintillating subject of my name pronunciation. Oh, I'm sorry. You got it right. No, I not obviously at all. didn't read that. No. Um, <laughs> no, that that was not to suggest that you should have whatever yeah no no i know anyway if they are interested in the pronunciation of my name which by now they certainly are not uh i could you have a little blog you have a blog spot on that um anyway writer memoirist essayist all those wonderful things for many years um op-ed writer for the los angeles times and the author most recently of the problem with everything my journey through the new culture wars it's out um available now on amazon and any good bestseller uh, list and any uh, good bookshop. Um, so go get it on Amazon. Um, series of essays, which I found diverting. And I was going to say, and I was saying to Megan just before the podcast, that the one reason I, I sort of wanted to hang out is because, you know, there was something you wrote once about the world feeling less lonely when you were grappling with the news when you were engaged with the breakup with your ex and you heard these various voices on the interwebs and it made you feel less lonely. And similarly, when I come across people who are really old school liberals, lefties to many, many, many respects who nonetheless began to feel a little crazy and uncomfortable the last six or seven years grappling with that, being quiet about it a lot of the time, but eventually addressing it and thinking through things all over again in our middle age, if you don't mind. I mean, you're younger than me. But. Yeah, pretty pretty middle. So, Megan, tell me, um, you started listening to these various IDW types on online and on YouTube, uh, and uh, and you you must have known... You weren't supposed to be liking these people. How 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 did that feel? Mm, I'm pretty sure they weren't called the IDW at the time I started listening. When did IDW crop up as a coinage? I feel like it was I, maybe I think like 2017 or something. Something like that. I think it was yeah. Barry Weiss uh, in the uh, New York Times. Well, she sort of popularized it, but it was Eric Weinstein who coined the term intellectual dark web. And I think he did it on the Rubin Report, of all places, if I'm remembering this correctly. And he said it in such an off-the-cuff way, and I think he almost intended it to, not as a joke necessarily, but not something that I think he meant to be taken as seriously as it has now. He didn't mean it to be as sticky as it has become. Right. I think it's a terrible right. name myself. It's a terrible name. It's a terrible name. Um, not least of all because intellectual is just a terrible word. Uh, but yeah, IDW stands for intellectual dark web and Eric, I coined it, uh, a couple of years ago, but yeah, to answer your question, I, around 2014, 2015, um, you know, I was getting, suddenly I was noticing this, uh, kind of gap between what I was thinking and feeling about 
things in the world and in the culture um, and, in, and in politics. Uh, and and what my friends were thinking, or at least what they were expressing online and in social media. And these were people I always thought we were ideologically aligned. We were very similar. These were other journalists, other writers, academics, whatever, just normal people in the world. And I thought, huh, why are we suddenly, why, for instance, on you know the subject of women, for instance, I always felt I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up um, assuming that I there was nothing that I that I couldn't do uh, as a girl. And if anything, the girls were doing better than the boys and women were succeeding um, in some cases far beyond uh, how men were doing. And I felt like my female friends, we all sort of recognized this and we certainly did not go through our lives on some kind of grievance setting. And somewhere around 2015, I started noticing that there was a really noticeable sort of shift in the kind of flavor of discussion. And a lot of it was on Twitter, um, but also other places. You were seeing it in the media. I mean, this is all stuff you know, Andrew. This is stuff you've yeah, talked but, about a lot. Yeah, but I'm still fascinated as to how this came about. Like, what what's would the, be... What's the root cause? That's what, I, that's what I keep asking myself. Because I think we will agree about the timing of it. It was the 2014-15 the yeah. was a kind of critical moment uh, when things began to shift. Um, and I had a weird experience of it because I took an entire year sabbatical around then. Uh, that's the, I, well, that's the cause then, Andrew, <laughs> you weren't around. <laughs> yeah. I figured it out. Um, I started to feel it a little bit at the dish where the interns, uh, who would go out like leaf cutter ants and find things on the web for me, started coming back with stuff that I was like. Good God, I, I, I stopped thinking about this kind of stuff in like 1996. Right. This can't be new, right? We've seen all this before. Um, but it seemed even more desperate this time around, even more angry, as if the fury had increased as the oppressions had declined. I mean, I, yes. for, like you, I understood the history of feminism to be one of triumph, in which, in which women were increasingly dominating the economy, uh, dominating the universities, always, I mean, I think always uh, leveraged much more power than people give women credit for through the centuries. But nonetheless, this was the breakthrough moment. And <clears throat> great. And then suddenly uh, there was this sense that Never before have women be so, been so oppressed in America than now. Right. And it's never been a worse time to be a woman in America, as yeah. we know, or, or more dangerous. Yeah. And it's um, like those, I get these emails from gay groups. It's like the Trump administration's unprecedented assault on gay men and lesbians. And I'm just like, yeah. really? I mean, as compared to like what, Eisenhower? Compared to, I mean, Reagan? Yeah, it is this kind of hyperbole as as the norm right there's a sort of rhetorical norm that is hyperbolic and you know i hate to reduce everything to generations and i do it a lot in in my last book and you know i do it for a reason because that's a lot of the conceit of the book but you know as time goes on and i talk about this more i try to try to stay away from you know talking about gen x versus millennials versus gen z etc but i do think there's something to be said for some of these younger generations coming up, I mean, they went, they, the, the type of person who would go to a liberal arts college and study these sorts of issues is more likely to then 
work in media, move to a big city, work in these sorts of institutions that have a lot of cultural influence. So um, it could just be that those those cohorts kind of came were coming up through the ranks in media organizations around that time. Um, yeah, you know. the, the difference I think was maybe that um, the media itself was in a crisis in the mid 2010s, right? And and people were being laid off all over the place. People were moving online. And people needed cheap content. And so yes. uh, they were desperate for content, needed more of it, and hired disproportionate numbers of people in that generation. And their editors and their people further up the chain were at that point so uh, completely bewildered by the changes and kind of defensive about them that they kind of gave in and just let the stuff uh, take over everything without realizing, I think, at the time quite what the consequences of that would be. So I do think it was partly economic, but also partly generational. Yep. And also they weren't paying very much for it. So you had the rise of opinion and the fall of reporting, right? So it's it costs money to pay reporters and have them go out and gather actual facts, right? Yeah. And so, the people, the kids, the, the young people who could afford to be doing this tended to be from uh, the upper right. classes who are also tended to be disproportionately uh, overwhelmed with critical theory in college and with all the latest uh, um, ideas, or at least not latest, they've been incredibly tired by them, but seem to have very vigorous new life. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So is it, but yeah, no, go ahead. Is it, is it what I would call some, some, some kind of civil rights movement envy that Every generation, in a way, want they, they grow up with this idea of the greatest thing to do in life was to be John Lewis or to be Martin Luther King Jr. or to be the great avatars of civil rights. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm no way, in any way, um, casting any doubt upon their, their 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 right to be in that position. But nonetheless, once you've achieved certain civil rights, what do you do then? Right. There seems to be a constant ratcheting up. It's an envy of stakes, right? Like it's because it feels good when the stakes are high. And actually when you're in a crisis and when the stakes are high, you can focus better and you get, you don't get hung up on small things. And, you know, people often talk about when they're, when they're in a sort of crisis situation with somebody, you know, an illness or just a, a you know, some kind of close, you know, a, a loved one almost dying, for instance, like I'm just thinking of, you know, in my own life, there is, it's terrible, but there is something um, very focused about it. Like yeah. when you're dealing with a, with a dying parent or something like that, and you know exactly what you need to do and you don't overthink it and you just, you, it, you can sort of rise to the occasion. And, you know, when you're in a world where the stakes, um, you know, feel, when things feel pretty safe and the stakes seem pretty low, if you are a, uh, you know, quote unquote, privileged enough person to be enjoying that kind of life. Yeah, I can see how there would be a temptation to uh, kind of gin up uh, problems and there's imagine a, crises that aren't there. There's a phrase that Trump has used, which I've, I've always thought was is kind of does help explain his blatant lies and distortions. He, he called it truthful hyperbole. And wow. did he come up with that? Yes, he's he, oh, he's okay. he's quoted that term, truthful hyperbole, and which is you know boldface lie in his case, but nonetheless a kind of salesman technique. And it struck me that what was happening in the in the middle of the 2010s 
was that rather familiar arguments were made again, but the words used to describe them were so much more extreme. So, for example, we had used to have racism, which was a problem. We need to talk about it. Suddenly we had white supremacy. Right. And that's ratcheting up of the rhetoric uh, to 11. And, and you ask yourself, well, what have they now shown that would make us want to completely reevaluate the present? as if it were the same as the KKK in the 20s, for example, which is what I last associate really with white supremacy, what people our generation understood yeah. to be what those words meant. And it struck me there was a new argument here. There was just a, a new emotionalism, a new hysteria about these things. Yeah, a new sort of semantics. Right. So in the conversation around feminism in the 70s, they would talk about male chauvinism, right? So that was one of the things they were fighting. And then it became sexism, which, okay, I can get my mind around that. And now it's misogyny. Yeah. So to me, misogyny means hatred of women, like actual, just you, you actively despise women. And so much of the time that when that term is applied, we're not talking about that. We're talking about just like uh, some guy being a jerk. I, like and again, these these words get totally defanged. I mean, this is this happens with everything. Well, but your I, your 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 belief in nuance would mean that, yes. that I'm a nuance evangelist now. Yeah. Well, treating all these phenomena, which are complicated and have many different levels within them, as if they are the worst always. Right. Right. Uh, so that you, I think of this awful word hate, which is now used yeah. ubiquitously. It can encompass mild discomfort, cultural uh, dislocation, uh, prejudice, bias, uh, fear. There's a whole lot of words to describe very distinct and different types of hate, quote unquote, are very different in structure. Like it, homophobia or anti-Semitism have some things in common, but they're very different than, than anti-black racism, for example, in the stri- psychological structure, as well as yeah. what they are. But all of this had to be disappeared into one category, hate, which was some a word you couldn't really discuss because it, it kind of says itself right there, the most extreme form of human aversion, right? Well, it shuts the conversation down. It's like bigot. That'll shut a conversation down. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, I, and I, I have to think it's because so much of this conversation, not so much of it, all of it, let's be honest, is taking place online and on social media. So if you can have short words that pack a lot of punch uh, and can some kind of idea that can be expressed very quickly, that will be rewarded. I mean, so what I, getting back to your initial question, like what I was starting to notice was that after 20 years of being an opinion writer and really having cut my teeth on long pieces that were complicated and were sort of inviting the reader to think alongside me as I sorted through ideas and I, I was sort of neither fish nor fowl, but like, you know, come along with me. Um, I noticed that suddenly um, that was not rewarded in the media ecosphere anymore. It wasn't rewarded in writing. Editors were not necessarily rewarding it. Not that they didn't want people to write those pieces and not that they didn't want to work on them, but there wasn't, um, the reward system was such that if you were going to try to say something that was complicated, uh, it wasn't going to pay off online. So I saw, in addition to people not writing very nuanced pieces, I saw people reacting in ways that were totally uh, just, I, I thought, beneath their intelligence level, just either either gushing over 
something that was like completely obvious um, or just, you know, hating on something that wasn't even that offensive because the dopamine hit that they would get from from signaling this way online was intoxicating. And I mean, you see it all the time. I, I, I can sit there. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say sit there and look at Twitter. And it's like, I look like, I, I feel like I'm looking at my friends or people I know just kind of gesturing in ways that I know they don't, they don't really think that, or at least they didn't used to 10 years ago when we used to get together in person and talk about this stuff. And that's where the loneliness comes in. So to get to your first question, I started feeling like the kinds of conversations, the kinds of interactions that had sustained me through my 20s and my 30s and a lot of my 40s were sort of evaporating. And and I was like, am I the only one feeling this way? And, um, you know, I had gotten divorced. My husband actually had really been my intellectual ally. I write about this yeah. in, in the piece I think you, you referenced yeah. and also in the book. Like, you know, for all our problems, we were always on the same page intellectually. Uh, and so when the marriage broke up, I found myself wandering over to this YouTube space and uh, kind of watching uh, people talk to each other and have these long conversations. And I got I got sucked in. So, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's how that started. That's the key, isn't it, Megan? Because sucked in, th this is what happens to us. I mean, also with Twitter, I mean, uh, I really should not be on Twitter, period. <laughs> it's so bad for me. I look and come off horrible and uh and seems yet, like you're not on it that much i don't see well, you no uh, i'm not i don't see you screwing around too much no either. i'm not i'm only i i'm 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 nothing like the the professional tweeters the ones who've built this huge army of followers online and who are clearly absolutely obsessed with this medium and engaging it and doing very well in many ways yeah. because of it um but i think i sound dumber I think I sound uh, more extreme. Uh, I think I sound uh, glibber. And yet, there's something about it I can't stop reading because this is where a lot of the energy intellectually yeah. is expressing itself. And I don't want to miss stuff. Um, but, but nonetheless, it happens. And then you find yourself in this context. And also, of course, there's this, also this numbers fixation where, oh, I've got, 200,000 followers or I've, you know, or, or this, this tweet got 5 million yeah. or whatever. I remember this from the early days of the blogosphere, getting incredibly excited because I could see for the first time uh, how yeah, many people were reading. Analytic. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you put on a magazine in the old days, you had no bloody clue uh, really what pages people were reading or what they weren't. Right. And to right. some extent, the, the reason why Leon Wieselfit could do that, could put a, you know, an eight page long nuanced piece about um, Jewish medieval literature uh, was because there was no metric to say, no one's reading this, or, or why are you putting this out there? Uh, it took different instincts. And I think online media has definitely just corroded all of that at once. Yeah. And the instant reaction. I mean, I remember when I first, I think a real kind of turning point for a lot of us was when we, you know, we started off writing for print and if somebody was angry at you, they would send a letter to the editor and you would maybe see it, right? And if they wanted to write a letter to the editor, they would have to like get a piece of paper and write something or type it and then find a stamp and put it in the mail and maybe the publication would tell you about it, but probably not. And maybe they would run it six weeks later. Uh, and that was kind of the, um, 
the transaction. That was the agreement between the the writer and the reader was that the writer wrote and the reader read and that everyone just kind of went on their merry way. And I remember when I first started to write online and seeing those comments, it may have been, I started writing uh, the opinion column for the Los Angeles Times in 2005. And I remember, first I remember, I guess for a few years prior, I had started to get emails from readers uh, who were angry and such. Um, but then when the comments when sort of the era of comments came, that was shocking. And I remember being uh, like really like, you know, my nose out of joint because, you know, sometimes there would be like the piece online and then the comments, I, I don't think the Los Angeles Times did this, but other places, the comments would be like adjacent to the piece. Like you wouldn't even have to finish the piece and scroll down. They would be right there. Like your eyes could shift back and forth. And it was like, it was like being heckled. It was like you were being heckled in real time. Uh, and so that started to shift. And it's funny because now I look back on that I and mean, complaining about commenters, that just sounds quaint, right? <laughs> and I don't think that I would be the sort of writer. Oh, I know I wouldn't be the sort of writer that I am if I had started out in this climate. And that's something I, I'm curious to talk to you about either now or some other time, because, you know, I can't imagine trying to make the points that I tried to make now. I mean, right. I'm afraid to make them now. And I've been at this for a long time. And I, you know, I'm a lot better at my craft than I was back then. But I would be too scared. The other it, it wouldn't be worth it. The other thing about the heckler uh, in this, the new form of heckler, we're not talking about the, I mean, back at the New Republic, I would publish every week, uh, cancel my subscription email or, 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 or letter just because it was kind of fun. And because that was part of what I was trying to do is kind of stir up the readership a little bit, not get them out of yeah. their comfort zone. But that was fine. And and the fact that we aired it was fine. And and heckling when it's about the things you're saying is one thing. But I found that about 80% of the heckling was just personal abuse. It was mm. attempts to uh, demoralize, discourage demean, hurt. It was it was extremely emotional and personal response. And uh, it shook me because I, I, you know, as a person of my life, whatever, I have friends and, and colleagues and acquaintances. And you rarely come across someone just out of the blue, just screaming at you that you're a fucking white supremacist. Get the fuck mm -hmm. out of here. Or you should retire by now. You're a old fucking waste of space you know that kind of stuff that just came directly at me in in a fire hose uh this is when i first edged back into into writing for new york magazine after my sabbatical so, so yeah this would have been like what year this would have been like 2016 actually at that point okay okay um yeah. uh yeah and then of course we had trump which right. which did something which added even more cray cray to this in other words you had this increasing hyperbole as you put it on the on the left and to some extent and yes to a great extent on the right as well but then you had this guy that sort of justified it all yeah that's the problem it was it, it added to the, the crazy but it really it legitimized it it gave it a mission yeah so it was all worth it we yeah. needed all hands on deck we cannot say anything that might give any 
ammunition to the other side and including being complicated. So that's, that's what, you know what, it depresses me more than anything. It, It depresses me as, as a as a thinker as a writer it depresses me on a on a creative level very very fundamentally well it's very anti creative right i mean it's it's very much you will say this, uh, these things right now because that's morally urgent to do so right um right. and and that moral urgency is self evident if you're not aware of that emergency on a moral level then you are obviously part of the problem and yeah. and trump for a lot of the people who have been marinated in identity politics, could only be understood by them in terms of identity politics. So it was he was right. a, this white male, patriarchal, racist, misogynist, all of which happened most of it to be true. I mean, he's he's the worst element of these things. I've never come across anybody who's sort of more awful on so many of those questions. But for me, that wasn't that wasn't. The whole story of why he emerged or what he I wanted to understand no. the issues involved. I wanted to understand the impact of immigration. I wanted to understand the impact of trade uh, and these broader culture wars, uh, which I found fascinating. But no, I had to see it through this prism. And that, by making me also somewhat sympathetic and interested in the people who voted for him, because I just didn't understand it at the scale it was. And, and for a writer, that's... That's a great project. How do I understand this? Right. Uh, but no, that was not what was wanted at all at that point. That's the thing with all these culture war issues, because people say, well, why are you wasting your time on on these things? Why are you talking about trans issues all day? Why are you talking about what college students are doing and all this sort of fringe identity politic Twitter stuff when you know there's much more concrete, bigger issues? Well, that stuff is like so fascinating. I could talk about that all day. Like that's the best show in town as far as I'm concerned. Like why the left has kind of compartmentalized itself the, the way it has. Like that is so much more interesting to me than just, you know, making blatant statements about how Trump is horrible and there are babies in cages. Yes, there are. And that is horrible. But once we have acknowledged that that's horrible, what's what are we going to talk about? And, and there was and kind of a thrill. Nobody wants to. It feels so good to say fuck Trump all day that why move on, I suppose. Well, I'm all all the idea you can't say fuck Trump and I don't agree with this. I mean, that radical idea that that you could find, as I have, uh, Trump to be absolutely intolerable on a whole variety of levels, but also find uh, left wing illiberalism and and simplicity and coercion and shame also repulsive. I mean, why are these things mutually exclusive? And so important to talk about and fix because all we're doing is handing it to them. Mm -hmm. All we are doing, you know, when the when the left sort of, you know, reduces itself to memes and hashtags and and cheap performative outrage, all we're doing is is giving them more leverage. And this is what I kept coming back to, you know, so the book the problem with everything it is it ended up being about everything but when i started it it was really about feminism it was going to be like a kind of manifesto it was going to be called you are not a badass um and i assumed that hillary clinton would be the president and everybody could sort of handle this critique of third or fourth wave feminism whatever wave you want to call it and you know so much of my problem then as now with the way that feminism has uh it, it, it sort of framed itself up today is that by by being obsessed with men and being obsessed with um, the injustices put upon us by men, 
all we're doing is handing them power that they don't necessarily have, right? There's this idea of punching up versus punching down. Okay, this is a comedy idea. It's now been applied to everything. So, you know, you're allowed to make fun of somebody or be horrible to them or call them names if you're punching up to them, if they are clearly in a position of power to you. So the logic to me was like, why are you, it's, why are we complaining about toxic masculinity and making fun of men and, you know, talking about mansplaining all day uh, and saying that that's okay because they have more power than we do. So therefore we're punching up. Well, you just handed them the power by carrying on like that. I mean, in my view, if you're a real feminist, you should notice how many men are beneath you. <laughs> That's how you should be walking through the world. And in some cases, treat them like kid gloves, treat them with kid gloves. And this concept, you know, I've talked about it many times and it it's astonishes me how few um, people really care to engage with it. The, and I don't know why. The psyche, obviously I'm not, looking at this from the position of a woman. Um, but well, I can only look at it from the position of a woman because that's what I am, right? I can't talk about race or <laughs> well, obviously. gay or trans. No, or I didn't mean else. that to be I'm one of those. In my lane. No, I know. Forgive me. I didn't mean, I can talk about this uh, despite <laughs> not being, but I have a different, slightly different experience right. of it uh, from from having kind of fought for visibility and, and civility and equality in the gay area for a long yeah. time and felt like at one point I was definitely a sort of ice cutter on that uh, in many ways, suddenly to have made so much progress, I mean, to have had probably the most successful civil rights movement in, 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 in modern times and its fastest, showing an incredible openness to change of minds and hearts if you do it the right way in America. Yeah. And visibility that it's just unrecognizable from 20 years ago. Um, uh, and suddenly we are no longer gay. We are LGBTQ plus and we are the most oppressed element of society. And uh, how are we going to overcome this, these social constructions of gender and indeed of, 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 of sex? Uh, and I, I, I'm just a little bewildered. Uh, as, as why can you not take yes for an answer? Why yeah. why does this have to not? Why just every experience, difficult, uncomfortable experience of being in a minority, has to be resolved by fixing the majority rather than developing the skills within that minority to be indifferent to this shit? Uh, as long as you've got the same rights, this stuff is part of being human. Yet. There's going to be homophobia everywhere, every day, everywhere, uh, in every culture. It's going to continue. But don't let it get to you. Um, and, and, and help other people in your minority to develop the kind of skin and the kind of uh, sensibility that can look at this stuff and not be mortally wounded by it all the time. There's currency in grievance. There's currency in identifying as someone in the margins. Uh, I wonder too, like getting back to what we were saying a little bit ago, if you if you come of age, if you grow up and you come of age in a world where everything's pretty peaceful, you've you pretty much got it made. Uh, is it is it just like I said, is it tempting to just want to create problems? Like you you get the combination of we have currency and in, in victimhood. You combine that with 
we don't really have a lot of problems. We don't have any wars on our soil. I mean, we got plenty of problems, but they're not that they're not that sexy to, to talk about. So for all intents and purposes, you've got these cohorts growing up um, with pretty smooth sailing. So I guess it would make sense to kind of just heighten your own drama. Um, you know, the other thing, too, that I think about a lot is like, when did uh, when did personality traits become identity categories? You know, it used to be just like, oh, I'm the kind of person who, uh, you know, feels this way. Like I was just talking to somebody about the the concept of the demisexual. Do you know that that uh, term? Is that someone who doesn't have any sex or? No, that's asexual. Yeah. And demisexual does not mean being attracted to, only to demi more. No, de- demisexual <laughs> is uh, if you are only attracted to people who you like, if you only want to have sex with people that you like or feel comfortable with. Now, <laughs> that could be, that's pretty common. Uh, but I mean, I use that as a sort of extreme example of this uh, this real compulsion to pathologize or just like create, um, create categories where there don't need to be. Well, this, I feel this way about gender. Um, and, I mean, I... I uh, I'm male, but it's I've I've never actually sat down and said, "Am I really male? Am I partly male?" Yeah, you have your cis privilege. Am no, I well? No. Yeah, I don't have that. I mean, I do maybe have some cis privilege. I did have some conflicts as a kid, like a lot of gay kids do, about why am I feeling this way? Am I really a girl? Am I am I not? And 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 that's quite common. Uh, puberty for me cured me of that. Um, I was suddenly like, I, I, this is great. Whatever this is. Uh, uh, I have this equipment 24 hours a day, and it's amazing. Best thing that happened to me in my life. I'm not a girl. Yes. Uh, yes so, uh, but I, and I think of myself as male, but I don't think of myself as having a gender in as much as I'm just me, right? So there are parts of me that clearly, if you wanted to say a sort of more feminine, that could be true. Uh, I sit down and read T.S. Eliot. You know, I used to, you know, I I, uh, I like walking in the countryside by myself or with my dog. I, like these, the, I don't know whether these That's are feminine so or whatever. Early, I, am, I don't yeah. like and never like contact sports. I don't like teams. I, I'm I'm phobic of violence, actually. Uh, but why do I have to call myself genderqueer? Why do I, I, I don't mind being a man who exhibits a range of... Of yeah. behaviors that could be gendered in any which way, but why do we have to? I'm also happy just having the shorthand of male. I mean, it's it's easy, right? I think we were so lucky to grow up uh, in a time where we could just live our lives sort of mm. un uh, unexamined by the digital sphere. We just sort of lived on our own terms. Mm. Uh, you know, it was much more it was much more gender neutral. When I was growing up in the seventies, I was a little kid in the seventies. There weren't like necessarily girls toys and boys toys. There were, there was some of that, but if you were a little girl, the cool thing was to be like what they called a tomboy back then. Like being a girly girl was not cool. Um, and it certainly didn't make you not a girl if you wanted to play sports and run around. I was, you know, like I say, in, in the problem with everything, I don't think it's any accident that the two uh, you know, the, the, the biggest female stars uh, of the 1970s were Jodie Foster, child stars, Jodie Foster in film and Christy McNichol as a television star. And they both you know, grew up to be out lesbians. Uh, so I think there was a sort of aesthetic that we could um, 
um, align ourselves with at that time that was much more fluid and there was just the a much wider bandwidth. Yeah, but and I, I think, get back, yeah, go on. Yeah, no, but I also, you know, I think this is something that I talk about too. Like this idea of being an outlier as opposed to an outsider is also something that people have a hard time recognizing. Mm. Like it, it may be like there's, there are certain things about me that are, most people are just not like that. Um, like for instance, I, I, I never wanted to have children. Okay. Um, and you know, it's just something about me. Uh, it makes me different than most people. Most people do want to have children. They will. Um, but I don't really, this doesn't need to be an identity category. Right. <laughs> it's just something about me. And most people aren't that way. And I don't really need to um, live in a world where people who don't want children are recognized as such. You know, there's this term child free uh, that I really can't stand. Uh, and, you know, there is a sort of movement or community of people who have chosen not to have children. And they're very um, they want to be they want to be recognized and they feel like they are overlooked. And that just doesn't make any sense to me. It's just it's just something about you. Uh, move on. And and I think we see that manifesting in all sorts of ways. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and and what that does in a way is 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 I think in some ways regressive in as much as uh, the attempt for young boys and girls to have to analyze or being analyzed on a range of super masculine to super feminine or where are you in this spectrum as opposed to you know you're just megan i'm just andrew i am i don't know where i would be you could probably have a a big argument about this but why does that matter uh why aren't we uh just comfortable with real diversity i mean my point always about intersectionalism intersectionality is that you know we're all a zillion different intersections of life history geography race religion gender, all of it. Uh, you take intersectionality to its logical conclusion, you end up with individualism. Uh, that we're all... Oh, intersectionality on its face is great. Yes. It's just been misapplied. Right. Woefully. Right. But, but it doesn't even have the concept, really, of the individual uh, person. Uh, like a lot of these sort of theories that come from forms of Marxism, this is not about the celebration of the unique individual. It's about the analysis of a variety of forces impinging upon that individual. And it places that individual in a in a very passive pass in a very passive light. Um, uh, I I mean this is all I mean it's America was has always been bad at this, but I remember when I first started writing and you know the list of adjectives that was constantly applied. I had to be the gay, Catholic, conservative, blah, 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 writer. They went through all these apparently in, incompatible identities that I had. You can't be gay and Catholic. You can't be, uh, right. you can't be gay and conservative. You, what do you mean, this, that, and the other? I'm like, well, look, you can talk about that. I'm just me. Uh, that I just, this is who I am. I never really thought that consciously of it. Um, why can't the world make space just for me? It doesn't have to make space for all these different identities, or it can, but just just deal with it. And and look at my writing, um, which is, of course, as a writer, you want you really want your individuality to be the voice. You 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 don't want to represent some group or other. That's right. That's well. That's why you get into it, a, and that's why they hire you, b, right? Like that was well, the not job. anymore, right? Not that's anymore. That's what I'm saying. It's not like it used to be the job to 
to say something new, right? To actually offer something that had not been experienced before. And that's like the opposite of the job now. Right. Like the job now is to uh, placate your readers who are already there, just kind of pander to your audience. Yeah. Let me change the, the subject a little bit. Because um, you've written a little bit about solitude, about being a single person, well, even though you're recently single again, relatively recently. Um, and you've lived, I mean, this year you went off to Appalachia for several months by yourself. Was that was that entirely alone, or did you have someone staying with you? I went down with a friend initially, um, but I was yeah, I was totally by myself for uh, it, yeah, most almost five months. I would say I was down there probably a total of six months. Yeah. Does that make you more sort of online in a way because that's the only con human contact you have? Oh, well, I'm not sure I was any more online than I would have been mm -hmm. at home. I mean, it was the pandemic, so. Uh, I, I, I mean, I am probably now that I'm back in New York, I am probably online as much as I was down there. But I do. Yeah. You know, when I thought a lot about this, this outlier versus outsider idea mm -hmm. a lot down there, because, um, it, you know, it seemed I was on this farm. I mean, it was a, it was a beautiful um, it, was, it was a fantastic situation. And I had a new puppy. The reason I went down there is because I had this new puppy uh, who was quite large and it, people in my building in New York were getting sick. Um, we actually had somebody die. A lot of people were very you know, sick with COVID here. Um, and the idea of going up and down in an elevator with the small puppy was just un unfeasible at that point. So I went down there. Uh, yeah, but I, I did. I noticed that I just, I really, I really like to be alone. I, um, it's I, un, I, it's underrated. I take great pleasure in it. Dogs help, though, right? I mean, oh yeah, for sure. I I was I, I was without a dog, uh, for the first time in twenty years last year for about a year, mm. uh, and it was so weird. It was really destabilizing. I mean, thank goodness I was on uh, book tour and I had distractions, but um, yeah, I like. How I, do you think <laughs> this pandemic has affected? the public discourse, or has it in any way? I mean, there are two things that are going to change this coming year in 2021. And one is that we will no longer have Trump as president. And two, not soon thereafter, we're not going to be quite as constricted in our, in our homes. The, the, the more the vaccines take, the more we're going to have um, more mobility for a long time. Um, I, I, I don't know what that is going to do to the culture. I, I, I don't either. I hope very much that the crazy lefties will calm down a bit more with Trump out the way. I'm also marginally hopeful that some of the crazies on the right may, may have blown themselves a bit out in the last, certainly now they're behaving in such extraordinarily insane and deranged and dangerous and scary ways. Um, uh, what do you, and then I think we're going to have a bit of a boom. I think we're also going to have a bit of a boom in, in, uh, in hedonism. Oh, the, 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 <laughs> what do you mean? Because everyone can get together. It's going to be like a big orgy. We can finally like touch each other and be close to each other. The roaring twenties. I mean, people forget oh, that, uh, that the twenties did come after this hideous pandemic. Uh, of the of the Spanish flu, and in fact, if you look back, I did I did this essay this year about it. It's fascinating that um, the yes, the ends of plagues are almost always associated with wild sex, lots of drinking, 
parties everywhere on a general letting off of steam with this exhilaration that this this previous prison has been. Uh, so I wonder what that'll do to politics and culture. That's uh, that's that's what I. That's a very hopeful scenario. Um, yeah, I mean, I I'm with you. I part of me thinks that without the excuse of Trumpism and without the excuse of the pandemic and the way that's been politicized, uh, we will be left with just ourselves, and we will have we will be forced to talk about things uh, without those sorts of crutches. I do worry that like the Biden administration is going to start pandering to wokeism in a way that's just going to be catnip for the right. And then the right will start reacting to that. And we'll just keep going back and forth. on. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't I don't I don't love the idea of uh, selecting a cabinet based on uh, checking boxes. No, me neither. Inevitable. Uh, So we will we'll see. I mean, I hope that I, I would really love to see Kamala Harris uh, revert back to her the, the way she was when everybody hated her. So you mean, <laughs> for better yeah, or for worse, a, a so, hard ass attorney general is what you want. I, I no, I mean not not really, but I don't I don't like uh, I I don't like the idea of just sort of um, e- emulating the the ethos of Twitter um, because she thinks it's it's necessary. I mean, when Elizabeth Warren put her pronouns in her twitter bio i just said you already have that that crowd you've already got them why why are you doing it and i i I wonder if it's almost like you see it's kind of like an adult like dressing like a kid or writing a you see like a middle-aged person riding a skateboard or something like do they want to seem young and hip or do they actually think they have to do this like what is driving them yeah well i think it's 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 now a a litmus test, right? It's it, it's 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 a necessary uh, uh, precondition of even entering the public space uh, in many places now. I mean, whether it be corporations or the academy, the pronoun issue is a kind of is a a kind of uh, credential in a way. It, it, it without that, you don't get in the room. Right. It's like it's like your security code. It's you swipe your card kind of to get in. But I mean, the thing is, and you know this. Ninety-nine percent of people think this is horseshit. All it's going to take is a few institutional leaders to stand up and say, "Like enough, no, we're not doing this. We're not participating." And I wonder if the rest of them would follow. That's that's what kills me. It's not. It's 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 not the it's not the young people, quote unquote. It's not. It's it's people who not only should know better but do know better, and are just so afraid uh, of being called bigots. I guess. And transphobes and all the rest that they they're just shaking in their boots. Or I see what happened. they're 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 hostages. I mean, it's a hostage situation. You mean big corporations? Uh, you think Google's management really knows that this stuff is kind of divisive and, and unnecessary? But well, but, but they don't want to alienate them. this audience, right? It's not it's not just academics. It's, it's it's the market that people right. the corporations are scared that if they don't do this, they would lose uh, credibility. And once but you've established they, these things, how do you undo them? That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, I have to, I, I will be so curious. I, I probably won't be alive, but we look back on this at some point, 50 years from now, and I was going to be like, what a crazy time. Yeah. It's like the satanic preschool panic time. Like, what were people right. thinking? That's crazy. Right. Like, you know, these the, the kids saying that they're transgender like that was wild and and the way people were reacting and what was that about like i i can't wait to see 
the cultural analysis, like, you know, the, the really good history books about this time. I, I'm sorry that I won't be alive to read them. I saw a poll uh, the other day in which 22% of the under 30s identified as LGBTQ. Uh, now, I guess Q takes a lot. takes up a lot of real estate. Huge, then. huge, yeah, and and you know B is every. Uh, uh, it's it's just not cool to be a lesbian at this point. It, oh, it, I know, it, which it, really bums me out because even though I'm not a lesbian, I'm a huge fan of lesbians. So yes, I'm, I have a Subaru, and I've although. Why hasn't the Subaru company uh, taken a hit with, I want to ask Katie Herzog about this because we, we are, uh, lesbians are going away, but Subaru is thriving. So somebody's buying them. But if you think, as I think you do, and I certainly do, that human nature doesn't change in five years, <laughs> that, 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 that the humans as we are basically as we've always been, and that there, there just aren't that many men who really want to have fall in love with and have sex with other men. It just, it's, I think women, it's a little different. Um, and, and it's a little bit more fluid uh, for women. Well, they the don't whole, have sex as much, actually, but yeah, okay. Or That's, they're not obsessed yeah. with sex quite as often, or they integrate sex more into... Uh, Watching TV. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry. There's a lot of good shows on. There's a lot of good stuff. A lot of lesbian bed death cable offerings let's just <laughs> well there's a lot of hetero bed death too let's yeah, let, tell let's, me let's about be yes. let's let's be frank here um but uh i i don't i don't think there are any more people who are genuinely transgender today than there were a hundred years ago no. and by that i mean people who are who genuinely are in some way at war with their own bodies in their minds this is a it's a it's a it's a unique and difficult and fascinating, but very challenging experience being transgender. And I support rights for every single, every single I mean, conceivable right for people, for people like free that. To, I mean, in terms of, are there, are, there are no more people than, that are transgender than there have been, but there are certainly more people who are able to recognize it, who yes. are even able to be aware of it in themselves. So Absolutely. there is going to be a change, but yeah, no, there I is. know what you're saying. There yeah. is. Obviously, that will affect things, but it will not affect things to such an extent that it goes from being 0.01% of the population to 22. That, that, oh, yeah, that's just like not going to happen. Of my friends who are parents have got her dealing with this with their kids on some level. There is that's ha- not a natural ratio. No, the the four thousand percent increase in young women seeking trans transition in the last ten years is, as opposed to and, and boys not uh, right. in the same way uh, having the same is clearly something something's going wrong here that that isn't actually reflecting the actual human nature of, of people and 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 of course I don't really mind anybody adapting any identity. My only concern has always only ever been that gay kids aren't uh, persuaded somehow that they need to alter their bodies permanently because they're having issues around their gender. They don't. Uh, There are transgender kids who do, and they need to be uh, cared for and tended to. But but a fast track to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones when you're barely at puberty is strikes me as just and the british high court has recently just struck it down actually i know um, i know just fascinating but but then i look at places like the atlantic or the new york times and there just isn't even an objective account of the debate no uh, there is an absolute uh I'll stick with that word absolute insistence that only one side is legitimate, that, that no question about this can be entertained. 
that in fact it's just simply a question of transphobia versus uh, progress. And what is it about trans activism that has been able to deploy this weapon? Other activist movements have not been able to deploy that weapon, and for some reason this one has. Well, because, again, truthful hyperbole, it is, it is absolutely true that transgender people have suffered terribly and, and also go through and have much higher rates of suicide, for example, than people who are not dealing with these, these, these questions. Not all of it is entirely imposed by society. People are at conflict within themselves in this situation. And a lot of the suicides happen after they transition. This idea that you will commit suicide if you can't transition is based on statistics that are just about pre-transition. But, but a parent is told two things. Is told, do you want a, a dead boy or a live girl? That's the extreme yeah, choice no, they're given. That your kid will commit suicide unless we do this, which is which is an emotional uh, blackmail of quite blackmail. staggering proportions. Um, and the other thing is, uh, we'll just we'll just stop this kid's puberty, and you get time to decide. And all of this is reversible, which is also not true. You will have serious consequences if you block a boy or a girl's puberty in terms of Yeah, I wondered. Their, I heard your um, your talk with uh, with Dana. Dana. We're with and, um, neuro. She was, yeah, disagreed with you on that. Yeah, but um, I I, was I think the evidence is pretty clear. For example, in bone density, in fact, this, some of the yeah. stuff coming up and neurological development. Um, so uh, that's the origin of this. And plenty of good liberal parents are being presented with with uh, very binary choices. <laughs> as it were, for what they can do for their kids. But I can also imagine feeling so dysphoric, feeling like you you really are in the wrong body. I mean, say that you're a natal male and you really are convinced that you are, you know that you are a female. To to have to sit there with your changing body, to have to wait out adolescence and have Mm. your body change in ways that are beyond your control and not to your liking, that would be hell. I can imagine that would be hellish. Yeah. So I see the I see the appeal of the blockers. I mean, any like a lot of kids going through puberty. I can imagine a lot of kids in any sorts of, you know, any given situation saying, well, you know, I'd like to just, you know, put this on pause uh for a while because I don't want to deal with this. And I think, right. I mean, didn't we used to see this in like gymnasts, female gymnasts? They would be given all sorts of things so they wouldn't develop. You know, so th- there have been many permutations of this. But yeah, no, I mean, this, and again, this is one of these subjects that is so interesting and there's so many layers. And mm-hmm. I just think it, it it brings up so much, you know, in terms of what we talk about, about what is, what is gender? What is sex? And I just think like on an intellectual level, it's incredibly stimulating. So it's yeah. frustrating that the conversation can't be had. Um, I mean, and that's... I don't know why somebody in the act in the trans community hasn't stepped forward as an activist and said, let's grow up. Let's have a grown up conversation with this. And I, as a trans person, I'm going to lead it. That's what I would love to see. Yeah. There are interesting people out there like like Dana, for example, who aren't easily pushed into one yeah. particular corner on this. But no, I agree. But but here's another thing I've you know, I. When I've talked to people like Dana or other trans people I know, um, and I ask them, well, what does it feel to be a man? I have to ask myself, like, because for most of us who are male or female, this has never occurred to us to have to understand that. 
And yet, and so one thinks it really isn't valid. And yet it does seem to me that there is a spectrum of maleness and femaleness in many ways. That, 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 uh, that, that uh, for example, I mean, I had this weird and unique experience of, because of HIV, having a lower and collapsing testosterone levels in my 30s. And so I had the experience of being a male, uh, fully developed, et cetera, that nonetheless then had experienced very low testosterone, so was less, as it were, male than I would otherwise have been. Then I got the testosterone treatment and shots, and boy, oh boy, that experience of feeling all this stuff come into my brain and my, I mean, very structural stuff that I wasn't really aware of, but that would really filled me with a lot of aggression, strength, uh, confidence, energy. Uh, and I got a little insight into what maleness, kind of more maleness could feel like in a way that one just isn't given a very opportunity. So I, I'm, I'm aware of what these different hormones will make you feel and, and how structurally they will change you. So I don't think it's crazy to think there's a spectrum of actual human experience, biologically as well as psychologically. Uh, but I don't want that to be something that's constantly being uh, located, isolated, defining you in certain ways. I don't see why we ha can't be comfortable with a general uh, moniker male uh, with a, a simple expression of that maleness being somewhere along the, along the spectrum, but not needing to be separated out as a completely different experience or identity. Yeah. And also, you know, your description of testosterone, I'm sitting here as a woman, like, wow, oh, that sounds pretty good. Like I would, I wouldn't mind trying that for a day. And I think that uh, that is a phenomenon. These women who are identifying as non-binary or they're transitioning or whatever, it's like, they want just like a little T. There's a sort of like bespoke aspect to these hormones and I, is that going to be like the new psychotropic pharmaceuticals like that like people are going to just sort of curate um their well their my, my sister who's in her late 50s also gets testosterone shots um for a whole bunch of, of medical reasons i don't have to go into but but if she hasn't had one in a while uh she can really feel her energy collapsing and she's she cuts hair for a living and standing up doing that all along is incredibly tough in many ways. And if, the, if that testosterone is falling, she's got a real problem. Um, wow. Uh, so it, it, does, it does affect you. Um, and talking also to detransitioners, these young women in their early 20s I did recently, you know, testosterone is a hell of a drug. You, 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 you're going to like it. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, but it it's 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 it has a structural impact on you that's fascinating, including your mind, your sex drive, everything. Um, it persuaded me that the differences between men and women are really quite large, and it made me more aware of how biology and nature actually determines our society in ways that we can mitigate against and we can right. push against, but we shouldn't expect. Uh, some utopia to suddenly happen because yeah. we're we're mammals. We have it's certain... not going to be socially engineered, right? And all I yeah. all I've ever believed really is that that matters too. Obviously, laws, society, culture, all of that, incredibly important. And as humans, we're unique among mammals because we, our brains can also help us change. But if you remove the whole concept of nature 
from your understanding of society. You're going to misread so much. Uh, and I think that's what my concern is here, that they're trying to get rid of nature as yep. a and reference. And you're going to misplace your grievance. That's the other thing. Exactly. I mean, I say this in my book. It's like Mother Nature is the ultimate misogynist, right? I mean, it is women are there is a, a a pay gap for a whole bunch of reasons. Nobody is nobody's debating whether or not a, a wage gap exists. Now, what are the reasons? There's a whole constellation of them. Some of them should be fought back against. Some of them should be, you know, we should really try to intervene and change that. But the fact is that women have to have babies. We get saddled with that. It is a hindrance. It might be something that most women want to do and it's worth it to them. But the fact is that that will uh, set you back if you are measuring your uh, your life or your your worth along certain like you know capitalist you know just as it lines. is like, it is right. it is true that uh, people from ethnic minorities are going to be disproportionately affected by this horrible epidemic because many of them are in uh, lower wage jobs which require things like public transportation or in interaction with human beings or essential services and all that stuff um, but Within that, still twice as many men as women are going to die of this thing. Oh, well, uh, did you read so that about the X chromosome and the, um, the interferons? I was a, there's a fascinating article about how they, they have now determined that the, COVID, the coronavirus actually lives on... Uh, oh, no, the, I don't know enough about virology to say this right, but the, the, the antibodies that fight the virus live on the X chromosome. So if you have two X chromosomes, you are you've got an extra one and you're able to fight it off. And if you only have one, you're that's you're at a disadvantage. It's completely so, let's, let's put it this way. It's completely possible. It's feasible. I mean, by the way, in 1918, uh, whites were much more disproportionately affected by the Spanish flu than African-Americans. Uh, oh. Weirdly, it's, it's, it's a, a weird part of history that that. You can have society, you can have class, you can have you know, all of the above, but nature will also be part of that picture. And I think that's the, this debate when you're trying to say yes, but, or yes, and, uh, that not every difference in society between different groups is going to be solely explained by uh, oppression or, or forces like that. that, that or there a conspiracy, are, right? Yes. Well, yeah, or I think conspiracy against you. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's just reality. Um, uh, and I, you know, I as as a homosexual, I do not understand why that's the way I turned out. I really don't. I have no idea. Uh, I'm aware that it makes me different than others, and it's probably made my life a little bit harder. Well, not, probably a lot harder when I was younger. Um, but hey, that's reality. I think. We have to come to terms with the reality. This is, and in fact, there comes a point at which you acknowledge your reality in a way that's liberating. You're not at war with it. You accept you're going to have right. limits. Well, you accept you might be an outlier. Or yeah, you'll be an right. outlier. I'm an outlier in almost any of the communities I kind of belong to. I just am. Well, so fucking what? You know, I could, <laughs> I can, I could. I could fight against that and insist that my viewpoint be central to everything and that everybody else should organize their lives around my experiences. Or I can just say, fuck it, you know, I'm okay. As long as I'm okay, I don't mind being 
I mean, when I say marginalized, I mean, some of us are always going to be at the margins. We're always going to be there. And see, this gets back to the loneliness thing, because I think that I think that people are they can't be alone. So I think the people who can acknowledge themselves as outliers are disproportionately able to be alone. They're alone mm. with themselves. So and they're alone with their thoughts. If you can be a, if you can be a sort of contrarian, I hate that word, but if you can be somebody who as a thinker um, has a counterintuitive instinct, if you're not afraid of people getting mad at you, pushing back against you, I think that those traits are more likely to correlate with being able to be alone. And so if you cannot be alone, you don't have those traits, it's very easy to get to want to be in a, in a club. And so if you're in the club of grievance, that's readily available and it's there to you. So I think that this this alienation and this loneliness uh, is at the heart of a lot of this. And yet and at the same time, it's a great way out of it, you know, yeah, in a cheap way, in a cheap way. Yeah, you could feel never alone. I mean, that's what the Internet offers you. You'll never be alone. Um, but the company you'll have will be at such a shallow and abstract level. And it's going to be so conditioning of your own mind that you'll, you'll need and want to be a part of that. You, you can't uh, – in, in regular human life before the internet, there'd be whole parts of your day where you'd be alone or in different interactions where you, you would mm -hmm. develop a certain kind of resilience personally to the impact of other people's views or arguments or now that's that's really hard to do for most people because we are online for an insane amount of time even though oh. we don't think we are we are and that is where we live if we live there we're going to become like those people uh and where do you think you lived before there was online i had a student ask me a question a year or so ago she said like what did you do when you were our age, like, you know, when you were in your 20s, I was teaching the same program that I went to for graduate school. And they, she said, well, what did, what did you do? You know, there was no internet. How did you spend most of your time? Like, how are we supposed to, and I, and I thought, God, I never thought about that. And then I look back on my 20s and the, the salient image of, is just of me like sitting at my desk, like staring out the window <laughs> or staring into space or listening to music or smoking a cigarette or just something like spacing out. I would space out all the time. And what a gift, because that is really not available anymore. I never do that anymore. I do it, but I'm, I've got something else on. And so to, I think just your brain wiring is such that you can, you can accommodate that kind of experience and that kind of silence. And you're alone with your thoughts. You are alone with your thoughts and you learn the value of that. Yeah. And that's not um, on offer. But it's, le and it's less pleasant. Superficially and immediately than distraction. I mean, I guess this is why people meditate. Like, I'm not a meditator. I don't know if you are. I can't well, get into it. I, no, you know. I've I've tried it quite a lot and was pretty hardcore at one point. I went on a ten ten day silent retreat of meditation. Oh. Um, and but I've always been uh, someone who 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 was brought up. For example, every week we would go to this place called a church, and there would be long periods of silence where one was simply supposed to be silent and together, which incredibly powerful thing, actually, uh, to have a, 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 a empty room full of people. I mean, a big, big, big church full of people and no one saying a word. And also, why are you taking such a long time to go to the altar? Like, 
why can't we get on with the readings? Because you suddenly realize there's another way of doing time. There's, there's, there's a ritualistic quality to time. There's, a, there's the time lived out uh, when you are living uh, not just in the present, but also in some other transcendent place, uh, which places everything into perspective in a way. Um, uh, I, I was fascinated by, I don't know whether you've ever seen this, but it's a rare documentary, but it's a great one. It's called Integrate Silence. It's by uh, Philip Gurney. The German uh, documentarian oh, who went to oh, the. I've seen every documentary, so that's I'll put that on my list. It do it's it's a challenge because it's a three hour documentary inside the Carthusian monastery in the Alps, with no words. Uh, oh. So, but you observe how these monks who have been there their whole lives in a silent order, they have one afternoon a week where they can leave the abbey and talk about business, the stuff they have to deal with. You know, they have to plan as humans. But most of the time, they're completely silent. And I'll tell you what's interesting to me about watching that movie is the way they move. They just move differently. They are not in a hurry. They're not even attempting to go from place A to place B. They are just moving. There are things to be done, but the way they do them is as if they have all the time in the world, which, of course, we do until we die. Uh, so I, you could watch a human society governed by an entirely different concept of what time is. And I, I sometimes wonder what it would have been like to observe humans uh, if they weren't struggling to survive in previous periods of time and how they understood time. If you lived in the countryside in France or, or Europe in, like, say, the 12th century, what, was your, what were your rhythms? How did they provide meaning for you? Um, and of course, they had an incredibly rich sense of time. It was both seasons, festivals. Uh, there was or that. letter writing, how much time it would take for a piece of correspondence to get to the person and back, something like that. But on a totally different scale, the scale was huge compared to... When I, was, when I fell in love at college... And the, the, the summers opened up and we wouldn't be able to be together. The, 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 I, there, were, there were pages of ink written that I managed to send out. I mean, they're a little embarrassing at this point. But nonetheless, not seeing someone and that sense of not being able to be in contact with someone until you get to, uh, that's all gone too. No one ever really has to miss anybody. Because mm. of, look at what we discovered in this pandemic. You know, you can always look at their face and talk to them. It, you don't have a letter that's still sitting there that you have no idea how they would. You don't even know what they look like. Right, right. It, this yeah, is, I, I wrote an essay once called "I Used to Be a Human Being," which is talking about <laughs> those things. Um, and I thought I'd try to get out of it, and then of course I've lapsed uh, right back into it because. And and then the worst is of course Twitter, where you're living just like this every second at the same time. Uh, and I also think that without silence, I think religious faith becomes very hard. Well, and so much of organized religion now is about loudness, right? Yes. It's like a rock show. Yeah. I mean, you go, it's the opposite of silence. Yeah. I wonder what it'd be like if we were enter there and realize, oh, shit, I, 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 what have I, I've now got to face myself and God. This is no. where I am. Nobody would go. Yep. There would be no, nobody would go to church. No. no. 
which is a huge lot. I hate to be one of these reactionaries that thinks everything is getting bad, but I, I kind of, uh, you know, I kind of do. do. Ever, are you ever feel grateful that you're the age you are? I just feel like I'm just going to back up slowly. Like that's kind of, you know, <laughs> I, I feel incredibly blessed to have lived when I lived. Um, yes. Partly because I, you know, in my lifetime as a gay man, the world has transformed more amazingly than any time in the history of humankind. I mean, so I've had a privilege to watch this happen and be a part of it in a way which yeah. is unique. Also, however, uh, going through the crucible of, of AIDS um, and, and the, 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 the very sobering and uh, spiritually transformative experience of watching uh, all your friends die and imagining that you could follow that. You had a similar experience. You, you've also confronted, you nearly died. Oh. You're a, you're, you're a deep reader. Uh, yeah, I did. Exactly 10 years ago, I, um, I almost died. I got a freak illness and I ended up um, in a coma, in a medically induced coma with a cascade of uh, really serious issues. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I did almost die. And, I, you know, it was like I it, it was strange, though, because it was so much worse for the people around me. I was unconscious for the worst of it, obviously. Uh, so in a way, it was like no skin off my nose. Like I could have died, like it could have gone one way or the other. Uh, and so for the people around me, it was terrifying uh, in a lot of ways, because if I, they were being told at certain points that if I didn't die, I was going to be brain damaged. Mm. Um, and I had been married mm. at that point for like a year. I mean, my mm. gosh, my husband, mm. you know, one year into marriage and she's brain damaged. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, yeah. I did. I did have that happen. But, you know, the funny thing, too, and, you know, I have a book, The Unspeakable. My podcast is called The Unspeakable, but I also have a book by that title. And, you know, a, one of the themes of the book is, you know, we, we sort of get um, pressured into into finding redemption in every experience. I think there's a very American um, kind of instinct to say, like, well, what can I learn out of this? What kind of object lesson is there here? How do I become a better person? Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the funny thing with that experience is that, I, I, you know, a lot of people were like, well, what, you know, you, you cheated death. Are you going to, are you going to change now? Like, are you going to be better person? And I thought, well, I'll probably go back to my, you know, for a while and then I'll go back to my old shitty ways, but, um, bad habits. Uh, but you know, it, in thinking about it, isn't, isn't not, isn't the ultimate survival staying the same person. Like I got through that experience and, and it's a miracle that, I didn't die, but it's also a miracle that I've just, I'm the same. It's um, also so really, it's also really instructive about oneself as to, uh, is to how one reverts back to one's old self. I mean, I, I it's a different experience in a way because I never, I never got sick. Uh, I, I just had the virus for, for a few years and so other people get sick. So I just had this constant I think the grappling with the actual illness overwhelms you at the time. You're just trying to, you're trying well, you're to actually survive. Both. You're in crisis you know, and you're dealing with it. You know what you're supposed to do and think, right? Yeah. yeah. At the same time, uh, you're still human. Uh, you don't know what death is going to be like. You, 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 you see it coming. And I think when you've shared that with someone, and I did with several people, uh, you, you do find a place psychologically over matter of years of watching this, experiencing this, where you find a place in your head where you, you really can be where this isn't 
completely overwhelming you. And that is, that's just the place you find by, out of desperation in a way, some place you can exist and breathe, which is not completely consumed by what's going on around you or what's happening to you. And that, I, even though you forget that, you lose memory of it, you don't relive it, the, the memory of it. Sort of muscle memory, like a cognitive muscle memory. Yeah, I was going to ask. So that was going to be my question. Are you, how much of that are you able to hold on to? Like that? Not whatever. much, most of the time. Yeah, uh, that's, that's fascinating. But, but nonetheless, you don't really have to. I, I, it's a bit like um, psilocybin. Uh, or uh, that that it will if you will on psilocybin if you're lucky see the see the world from the mountaintop. For I real? haven't done that. I, I are, have you are you you're really into that? Yeah. I'm afraid. I'm fascinated, but I'm afraid. Don't be afraid. Be not afraid. Do it right now. Uh, what if you did not a podcast? What if you, that was the whole podcast? I wouldn't want a podcast if I were doing that. <laughs> it, would be, it would be absolutely <laughs> nightmare. Great. I would, I would just be Listen. marveling at how beautiful this microphone condom is. Uh, audio only. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, but the thing is that you don't want to do that right away again at all. Uh, it's not like an addictive drug. It is just a reminder of who you are, where you are. You're, we're, we're on this planet spinning through a universe that seems to be without end. And you're going to die. And whoever you are, pretty much no one will remember you pretty soon. Uh, most of the time. And what are you doing? Uh, and to experience that sort of crisis, but to feel also completely at peace with it, hugely beneficial, generally speaking, to humans, I think. Are you afraid of death? Now I'm interviewing you. See, sorry, bad habit. Well, I, you no, it's, you, you, I'm, you're better than me. Uh, 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 no, I don't think I am. Wow. I think I kind of look forward to it in a way. Oh, uh, not dying. I not mean, dying, dying itself. Is no, I don't. Uh, dying is not an experience I'm looking forward to. I want to um, be able to kill myself. That's a big priority, you know, mm. if need be. Think I don't want to be helpless at That's 85. Exactly. I just don't. Uh, um, yeah, I, I don't like the idea of decrepit old age, but at the same time, um, it's part of what you, and when you get there, you'll cope with it because that's what humans have always done. We, we've learned, we know what, how to deal with old age once we get there, um, but we won't until we get there. But I'm not afraid like, of death. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be the big the civil rights issue of, you know, the, the baby boomers are going to age and they're going to realize that they don't want to be kept alive. Um, Forever. By any means necessary. And, and I, I think we're really going to have to rethink um, end of life uh, choices. And yes, I do. I do. I do too. It's it's kind of awful to watch people live too long. Yeah, I mean, uh, our animals are lucky. I mean, we we make sure put that them out of their misery. Get, we get them out of this yeah. uh, in a in a reasonable way. And yeah. why we why we don't have the uh, option to do that for one another is mystery well me. because it's the, the possibility okay. of abuse would be enormous <laughs> okay don't 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 mess up my <laughs> well I, yeah I, I i i think death will be in some ways a relief um there's there's a my favorite philosopher had this phrase called the ordeal of consciousness mm -hmm. and 
I think it is an ordeal at times, uh, having to figure everything out all the time. Who, what's going on in the? I mean, it is an ordeal. Uh, it's difficult. There are moments of complete transcendence if you're lucky. There are moments of love. There are moments of friendship and happiness. Uh, but all in all, it, it's a struggle to be this, have this, these kind of brains as humans, and have this little knowledge of where you are and where you're going. Yeah, life, life is suffering, and and people like us suffer the least of anybody. I mean, we just hardly have any of it. But you think, I mean, D David Benatar, the philosophers, you know, the idea, is it better never to have lived? Like this idea is, is it really worth it to live? Like that's something I think about a lot. Like, mm. was this worth it? And it sounds incredibly dark. And that's the kind of thing that people get upset and worried and, you know, don't, don't look at it that way. But I think it's an interesting. And we don't think and talk about death enough. I don't think in this culture at all, really. I mean, what's amazing to me about this epidemic is that We've really not seen people actually physically die of this. We haven't seen people in the throes of this inside hospitals um, or how agonizing this disease can be. Um, and, and so it's existing there. We, we have this number, 300,000, kind of mind-numbing figure. Um, and we can't because if we, even if there are people around us that get it, they're going to be spirited out of our... Yeah. lives pretty quickly into somewhere else where they will die alone, where no one will have the ability and to accept behind plastic sheets and masks and there's so many layers, literal and, layers between between uh, the viewer and the Yeah, person. and the but the people, the, the healthcare workers who are experiencing this death and this suffering, they're the only ones truly exposed to what's really happening right now. I, I, I really think we should try and do more to get out images of, of reality. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something unique about this epidemic where we don't see it. Yeah. Uh, so there's something surreal about it, which also, by the way, I think really uh, hurts uh, our, our ability to not get it. We're just not afraid enough. Um, and we would be more afraid if we saw more of it. Um, yeah, that's, that's uh, very true. That's very true. Yeah, people were, I mean, people were so terrified of AIDS people who were really at no risk at all. Right. I mean, I remember being, and this is something I've written about. I remember I was, you know, a, like straight white chick in my twenties in the nineties. And th every public service announcement was telling me I was ju at just as much risk as anybody, you know, yeah, when I went another, to college, they would yeah. tell us, you know, I remember they said there are, there are lesbians on this campus who have transmitted HIV to other lesbians. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Somebody said that. I think it was like a student health representative or something. And but of like, course, oh, oh my God. the death rate from COVID is, what is it, like point something percent, maybe 0.5 percent, um, or maybe more than, I think maybe 1 percent. Um, death rate from HIV was 100 percent. Yes. Uh, for a long at time, time. At that yes. time. For a long time. Yeah. Um, for 15 years. That makes it a little different. Uh, but nonetheless, but transmission is a, it's a very, yes, yeah. it's reversed, right? It's a very different story. The transmission is. And I have I mean, it, PTSD it from all this, obviously, like a lot of other yeah, gay men right, right now. That, no, 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 no. Yeah. I'm, 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 I apologize. I no, it's just, it's, it's, uh, the, the other thing that's interesting is that the opprobrium that's now cast on people who get infected. I mean, there is a certain amount of public with, shame. With HIV or with COVID? With, with COVID. Um, oh, really? 
Yeah, don't you? Oh, so and so got it. You know, Giuliani. Of course, he got it. Well, if they're on the wrong side, if they've been an anti-masker, right? If so, right, if but I like think even even other people have been. Yeah, I guess that's part of that. I don't know. That's a, I haven't noticed that. That it's a stigma. I feel like I know so many people who've had it, and if anything, it's like, oh well, now they had it, and maybe they're immune for a mm. while. It's mm. kind of a bragging it's even a plus. Yeah, I was. Somebody was telling me that um, that they were doing like online dating, and like one of the things on the dating apps is people show a picture of their antibody, um, <laughs> like their. Uh, I know it's really hot, isn't it? Like they they would say, "I've got antibodies." So, and that's the other thing not, you could you could actually quite successfully have sex with someone who was HIV positive who did safe sex and not get infected. You can't with COVID. Uh, it's more transmissible. It's a lot more transmissible. Well, just breathing a, the same air as someone. There was some sort of um, like public health uh, graphic. It was going around like how to have safer sex during COVID. And it was like anybody who had lived through the AIDS crisis, like their head must be exploding because it was like, well, don't have um, face to face sex. <laughs> no, glory holes have made a huge comeback. <laughs> so retro. Some, somehow, yeah. If you want to avoid COVID, you should only you know do it other ways but you're also asking people for a year not to have sex right i mean if you really want to be super careful you can't have sex for a year i mean uh yeah but everybody makes up see this is like the arbitrary calculus of right harm harm reduction everyone just kind of makes up their own rules we do and we make up our own rationalizations as well as our own rules megan it's been really fun to get to know you a bit and to talk um through this stuff I feel, I do feel less alone talking to you. Uh, oh, maybe we just well, we're generationally marooned, but uh, it, it's great to hear someone with so much sort of clarity and sense about these things. Well, likewise, and um, I've been wanting to meet you for a long time, so this is and this is as it's going to get right now. So I'm I'm happy to, to good. Talk. I really and I, don't uh, um, don't forget uh, Megan's book. The trouble with everything. No, what was it? The problem with everything. Sorry, the problem with everything. Not everything is terrible. Right. Yeah. The The problem problem with everything. everything. It was going to be called "Woke Me When It's Over" (laughs) for a long time. That's pretty good. uh, My publisher, I thought it. I, I, I I was tempted, but you know, it's not a serious title. It's kind of the thing. Like if Laura Ingram were clever, she might call her book "Woke Me When It's Over." But yeah, the problem with everything is what it's called. Never mind. It's 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 a really fun book and a really helpful guide to the madness we're living through. And please subscribe to the Weekly Dish uh, every week. We're doing really well. We're almost up to ninety thousand subscribers now. Um, not all paid subscribers, but people who are getting it every week. And so we'd like to get that a little bit further up. Um, you can sign up for the uh, Part Dish, my column every week for free. You can get it every week delivered to you for no, nothing at all. And if you want to then get the rest of the dish, uh, you can you can sign up and actually pay us some money. Anyway, thank you, Megan. Uh, this is uh, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.